This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. With the explosion of tools such as Twitter, the concept of online presence has suddenly become much more visible. In a panel discussion about presence, identity, and attention in social web architecture, Christian Krumlish, Christina Woodkey, Andrew Hinton, and Gene Smith talk about core IA-related issues, including structure of social sites, tagging and folksonomies, data models for people and their relationships, as well as navigating in a community site. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. And uh, just to give an idea of the, the structure we have in mind here, um, each of us is going to uh, speak for about 10 minutes, some prepared thoughts. Um, and then we're going to have a little bit of panel discussion around some issues that will have arisen by then, I believe. Um, and then we're going to allow some time for uh, questions from the audience that, that we'll field on the panel as well. Um, so that's the structure. Uh, if, you, if you would not mind holding your questions till that period near the end, I think that would be best for us, for our comfort level. Um, so first, who am I? I'm Christian. I'm male and taken, according to Flickr. Um, I have this picture of me that's on one of my sites. I uh, had a company called Media Junkie. I was a volunteer for Howard Dean. I wrote a book called The Power of Many. I'm a blogger for You're It, a blog on tagging. I haven't posted anything there in at least a year. Uh, I'm on the board of the Information Architecture Institute. Um, on LinkedIn, I'm a writer and an information architect, et cetera, et cetera. I work for Yahoo. Um, I'm the curator of the Pattern Library. We have a cool new logo. Um, so that's me. Okay. Oh, and this is an avatar that you may have seen. Okay. All right, so uh, why do I care about presence? Well, I wrote this book called The Power of Many a couple years ago. And um, as happens when you're writing a nonfiction book, typically you get really obsessed with the subject and it becomes this sort of lens or matrix in your brain and you start to see it everywhere and it becomes an issue that you're concerned with and find reflections of everywhere. And the other thing that happens is that you begin to have more and more ideas and thoughts for, well, we should have another chapter on this new thing I just started thinking about. And the time runs out and the publisher says, you're way overdue already. And uh, what the hell is that sound back there? Okay. And um, it's getting louder. <laughs> okay. I notice when I turn my head to the left that I, my voice also gets easier to hear. So talk like this. So anyway, my next slide is, um, okay, we'll see. Anyway, um, okay, so, so one of the things that came up was this idea that uh, the social media using technology and, um, you know, wires or wireless things to communicate with other people isn't really that new. It's like 100 years old, at least, because they started wiring up the planet with telegraph around that time. And really, it's just been a bandwidth improvement since then. And when telephones were introduced, uh, a lot of people thought, why the hell will I ever need a telephone? If I want to talk to Farmer Bob, I'll walk five miles to his farm and we'll talk over coffee. And it's so, it would be so strange to talk to a person who 
is not in the same room with me, that would be creepy, you know? And, and, and there's expressions like from the 20s that this sounds phony. And it, that comes from the idea that a voice on the telephone sounds tinny and wrong and it's in that uncanny valley some people talk about. Um, or at least it seemed to pe people back then to be like that. Uh, and there's also the expression, uh, he, he, was, he was just phoning it in. You know, the person wasn't really being fully present at that moment. They were just kind of doing the minimum from a distance without really fully arriving. Um, and I think that those issues are still with us. Um, we, I think we got pretty good at, at, at using landlines. Um, and then they took them away and made our phones all suck again. And you know, now suddenly you don't have full duplex and it drops out and it's sketchy. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought, I thought telephones were figured out. Um, and then the main thing that's different is that you know, it used to be your telephone, my telephone was in my house and your telephone was in your house or your office. And if the phone rang in the house and I wasn't there, then you didn't get to talk to me. And you, maybe you could leave me a message after a while and maybe I could find out that someone had called, but um, it was attached to the place and not to the person. You know, and as you start to have a mobile phone, now instead of having a fixed dot here and a fixed dot here and a line that can be opened up between them, you have these two dots that are moving around um, and, and these connections that can happen even if you're at the zoo, even if you're changing a diaper, even if you're doing all these other things. Um, and so whatever etiquette people had worked out for how to talk on the phone or how to call people or when's a good time to call, and whether you should be distracted and doing the dishes while you're calling or not, and things like that, suddenly those seem to all go out the window because we had all these new contexts to figure out. Um, and, and everybody knows about the obnoxious guy who's talking about his deal at dinner or something like that. Um, and uh, on some level I realized that yes, people are rude and obnoxious and, and, and I hate that guy. He, was, didn't, he almost hit me with his car because he was talking on his phone and all those things. But to be fair, this is still kind of new. And as a culture, collectively, as a generation or a cohort of people moving through this time, uh, we're still learning how to do this, okay? And, um, and, and I think part of it is that we haven't worked out the ground rules and the protocols. And I think probably younger people are, are figuring those things out. Um, and one thing that, that, little, that little dialogue there on the right and, um, was one of, the, one of these thoughts I had towards the end of writing my book, that when I call people on a cell phone, or really on any kind of a phone now, I now ask them if they are, if this is a good time for a call. You know, a lot of people do that. And if they say no, then I try to schedule another time. And if it is a good time for a call, I ask them how much time do they have? Because if they have only five minutes, I don't want to launch into the 30 minute conversation and around four and a half minutes, they're going to be kind of distracted because they didn't tell me that they really have to go somewhere pretty soon. Um, I want to give them the five minute version and schedule the follow up. And so by just kind of structuring expectations on both ends, working out like a handshake, about what this phone call is about, how long it's going to take, I, I believe it's then possible for me to be more present and for the person I'm talking to to be more present, to make more of their attention available uh, while having that communication. Um, let me see, I'm going to skip a couple things. Uh, so I've been working on social patterns um, as one of the areas, the pattern areas of interest um, for the Yahoo Pattern Library. And last fall, I kind of led a brainstorming exercise at Bar Camp. Um, in Palo Alto around what are some names for social patterns that we should be looking at and studying. And what, one thing that was interesting was that a lot of people um, uh, had ideas. Uh, when I asked them to think about patterns, they really got kind of stuck. But when I asked them to think about, well, what are just some of the things that you do in social networks? Or what are some, some of the activities? Or what are some of the gestures? Then the brainstorming really came. And a lot of them were things that, that actually um, as they went off on riffs and jags, and we got an initial structure, but it's not nearly like sort of the final taxonomy 
that I think we're going to share ultimately. But it's one of the inputs that we're taking in. And this, this uh, graph of these various patterns is something I've put on my blog and other people have iterated. And it's something that will inform the social patterns that we publish probably later this year. Um, I want to skip ahead because I, I, I want to really just lay out some, a little bit of groundwork on what we're talking about when we're talking about presence and attention. This is my obligatory Venn diagram. Um, and it's really kind of just bullshit. It's what most of the words that we like to talk about kind of cluster together. It's not really tested. It has no, it's no concept model. It doesn't say what causes what or what aspect of what is it. Uh, it, it it's just this really loose sort that's more attractive than a, than a, a list of words. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm really trying to not waste too much time. I've, I've got too, much, too many slides here, and they will all be published on SlideShare, and I really want all my other panelists to, to be able to present themselves. Um, let me just lay out a couple things about what are we talking about when we're talking about presence. Because the word presence is showing up a lot now. It's going to be the topic of the book I'm supposedly going to write next. And, um, uh, and when I have these conversations with people, I realize that it's meant different things even in the online context over the last couple of years. So the original, I'd say the first, the first way that people used the word presence when they were talking about the web was the idea of an online presence and really just kind of a trivial idea of do you have a website? Uh, does your company have a presence on the web? That may be a billboard, that may be a, a Dropbox, or it could be a web application. It could be a whole range of things. But on some level, it's just that idea of are you keeping up with the Joneses? Um, the next sort of version of that that I see was a kind of a, a, the human or personal version of that, that you start to say, I am present on the web. If you want to know who I am, you should read my blog, because I update it every couple days, or now every couple months, or whatever. And if you read it over the years, you'll actually have an idea of what I'm thinking about, where I used to work, what's going on, you know, what's changed in my life. And so in a sense, that trail that I'm leaving behind me, that I'm putting uh, of my personal life out onto the web, is a form of presence. Okay? But it's not the sort of immediate, most recent, happening right now sense of presence, the sense that you're in company with other people, that is the third sense, and is really the one that most people are using presence to mean at this point, and that's mainly um, uh, relevant in this discussion of designing and architecting social, uh, social si systems or social networks. So the, there's a lot of pieces to this third kind of presence, um, but mainly I would say that it has to do with availability. Like, are you actually logged in right now? Are you online? Are you letting people talk to you by IM? Are you in the game? Are you in this chat? Are you watching this WebEx or not? That kind of presence. And then there's also the attachment to that, which is the ability in a lot of systems to then add a note saying, I'm available, I'm not available, I'm at lunch, I'll be back soon, I'm listening to this song, I hate doing wireframes, you know, or this, that, that, or the other. And that then evolves into, say, like Twitter or something where there's a constant stream of updates about what you're doing right now, in a sense that you're present partly because you've updated recently, partly because you keep imbuing this experience with little tidbits of your actual life, the, the, the vivid happening life that, that's going on for you in the moment. The, the fourth uh, sense of presence, which I think does relate to the third one, um, is uh, a little bit more about, about psychology and, and spirituality even, which is the idea of how much are you present? I mean, you're in the room right now. All of you are present in the old-fashioned non-online sense that we're all together in the room. We all came to Miami to be in the same place. But are you actually um, reading Twitter right now and not listening to me? You know, are you writing a blog entry? Are you playing solitaire? Are, you know, whatever. If you're doing those kinds of things, then you might not be fully present. There might be like partial presence, like we talk about continuous partial attention. Um, and you may want to think about how present are people able to be, and, and, and how can people maximize the amount of presence and maximize the amount of their attention that they're willing to sort of pour into these channels of connection. Um, so that's an area that it can drift into sort of kumbaya, you know, new agey kind of thinking. 
but I think it does relate to that, that third kind of presence, which is just the, the more tactical, symbolic, am I here or not? What, what, what did I have for lunch just now? Um, it was the salmon. It was very good. Okay. Um, let's skip a couple more things. Um, this is me stalking Peter Merholtz. Uh, this is where he has coffee. Um, that's where he works. Let me see what else. Um, <laughs> Tell Fire Eagle. Um, okay. And uh, this is my friend George Kelly um, quoting another person, but saying basically, like, is it really a good idea to, to let people kind of know your everyday rounds, like where you went that day and maybe when you tend to not be at the house and do you not always lock the door, you know, stuff like that. Um, uh, in that brainstorm I mentioned, a lot of people talked about things that weren't so much the technical, like communicating over a channel, but were more like emotional, psychological things that you can do. Like they made this cluster called dating, and people said, well, some of the th aspects of dating, some of the patterns around dating are flirting, stalking, drunk dialing, <laughs> cyber sex, <laughs> marrying, and of course, divorcing. You know? Now, from a designer's point of view, that may all just be whispering or messaging or something like that. But I think you need to think about what's the quality, the human qualities, the emotional qualities that are going to be used along these channels. Um, uh, similarly, we had a brainstorm around communities and managing communities, and we have facilitating discussion, arguing, collaboration, moderating groups, forking a group, things like that. Okay, another thing that relates to online presence and relationships is this idea that if, if they're poorly designed, they automatically create social awkwardness. So any system that has an explicit friendship model where you have to actually go knock on everybody's door and say, hi, I'm collecting friends, and would you like to be one of my friends? Can I add you to my list of friends? Can I put it in the newspaper? You know, none of those are natural. That's not the way people really make friends. What they do is they do things together, they spend more and more time together, and one day they wake up and realize they have a friend. Um, so, <laughs> when, uh, that's what I've heard, you know, anyway. Um, so, if, you, uh, if you're designing a system, you have to think about, are you actually creating byways and connections and, and widgets that, that automatically make awkward moments where you have to say to somebody, no, you may not be my friend. You know? um, it might be better to have something, things like that be more less reciprocal, less, 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 less uh, automated. On the other hand, maybe you want that, but it's, it's a design issue you have to consider. Um, I've collected a bunch of, of anti-patterns to do with relationships, but I, I think they, don't, um, they, can, they can be looked at on SlideShare without any loss of quality. Um, Slides. Thank you. <laughs> well, I want I want to give you guys your time, you know, and I could just talk all day, which I don't want to do. Okay. Okay. Um, one last thing is I think that as designers and and those of us who who are starting to design social spaces, I think you have to realize that the social media are also areas where you can do some of your design work and some of your guerrilla testing and research and things like that. So Rashmi Sinha on Twitter just had a, a question about how to create how to give people privacy essentially on SlideShare, but without making that space feel empty. You know, I'm sure that she's not gonna base her entire design on the reply she got on Twitter, but she did feel like she could just throw out a question to this community that she was part of. Um, at another point, I, uh, I sent um, a note out to Twitter saying, does SlideShare have the concept of a response? Because like YouTube has this concept that I like, I'm gonna respond to this video and you can get this chain, this dialogue that happens through YouTube. And I was like, well, why don't we have that? Like, your slides are, are okay, but here's my slides. They answer your slides. And um, Rashmi said, it turns out you can. And she said, here's a link. And so I clicked on the link, and here's a, here's a slide deck about blogging or something, peak email it's called, and then here's that other person's response that shows up in the thread. And I said, okay, that's cool. Now do we have the concept of shared authorship? 
Because I've got some slides I've worked on with other people. And if I post them, I get the credit for them, or they have to post a duplicate, which is ridiculous. Why can't we both say we, we wrote this thing together? And she said, no, but we thought about maybe a co-author tag or something like that. And this was like six hours later, her reply. Um, and, I, and then I said, well, I've got to, and she said, do you have any ideas? Like, how should we, ideas welcome. I said, okay, well, maybe you can have a claim idea. Like, like I see this, th these slides that Bryce made, but I think I also contributed to them. So I go to SlideShare and I say, I'm also the author. And the original author could then maybe okay that or not. Um, you know, whether she did that or not, uh, uh, I thought it was interesting that we were having a dialogue about the functionality of the social system over another social system. Um, this is one last thing I just saw today. Baratunde Thurston posted this on Twitter. He says, Jing needs to stop crashing in the middle of my recording sessions. Okay? So he's a video blogger, he's a comedian, he writes for The Onion, he's sort of influential in, in some spheres, and he's making, I believe Jing is, I'm sure it's video recording, I hope so, um, but it shuts down, um, and he doesn't go call them up and say, I need a feature, or I need a bug fix, he just like is annoyed, he's, he just went offline, or he just lost his, 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 his application, so he goes to Twitter and complains. You know, the question is, is Jing paying attention to that? Are they listening? Are they going to look, you know, for the solution to that feature? Um, that's, uh, oh, and I'm looking for an intern. <laughs> so if you know any, yeah, yeah. But I'm married now, as Andrew says. Okay. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Jean. And, uh, you know, anything I gave short shrift to, we'll try to cover, um, you know, once other people have had their say. So we're going to plug you in. Yeah, I can give you the mic. I don't know. I guess so. Will you be my friend? Yeah. Okay. Um, will you be my fan? Um, I already am your fan. No, I don't want to be. <laughs> I can just hold this near your mouth. Cool. <laughs> Wait a sec. I can't have your phone. All right. Is that okay? Everybody hear me? All right. Um, who has uh, fanned somebody uh, on Crowdline here? Everybody? Who has been fanned? Who finds it all a little weird? Yeah, me too. It's fun, but I'm never sure if I should fan you back. So if I haven't fanned you back, don't, don't be offended. I like you, but um, just not totally comfortable with that. Uh, okay, so my name is Gene Smith. I, um, uh, I'm from a company called Enform, and uh, we're in Canada. And uh, I, I wrote a book on tagging, and you might have seen my presentation earlier. I'm actually not going to talk too much about that. I think I'm here because I um, made this, uh, this um, diagram. And uh, this is actually not, these aren't my ideas, but this is a diagram that I made based on thinking of a couple other people, uh, Matt Webb and Stuart Butterfield primarily. Um, and I really liked what they were talking about. They'd come up with these seven kind of components for social software. And it seemed like these were a really good foundation for thinking about how social software works and even a way for starting to you know, break down existing social software systems or think about how stuff we might be designing, what, what kind of pieces do we need at a very high level to incorporate. Uh, so and I'll just walk you through these. These are like seven kind of building blocks. And um, uh, they start in the center with identity, which is a way of uniquely identifying people in the system. Go to relationships, a way of describing 
how two users, users are related, things like fan, uh, friend, contacts, family, that sort of thing. Conversations, a way of talking to other people, uh, and above that, groups, a way of forming communities that can uh, converse. Reputation, um, a way of knowing the uh, status of somebody in the community. Uh, conversations, that would be conversations. Yeah, sharing, way of sharing things that are meaningful. And finally, finally presence, a way of knowing who's online, available otherwise nearby. So really, in this sense, I'm talking about Christian's third sense of presence, being in the company of other people in the system. And so as I started to get ready for this panel, I thought, well, you know, maybe presence and identity are the real foundation of social software systems. And maybe this is where we should be focusing a lot of our, our thinking. And this is actually not new. This is not stuff that's been developed since the web. It's actually a really great history uh, in uh, soci sociology and psychology of, uh, about the, the importance of presence. And I guess kind of the landmark study is the Hawthorne effect, which I'm sure most of you already know about. But I'll just quickly go through it. Uh, so uh, at the Western Electric Hawthorne plant in the 1920s and 30s, Harvard was doing a bunch of sociological research related to uh, worker productivity. And this guy named Elton Mayo went there to do some research. This plant had about 29,000 employees. So it was really one of the biggest uh, industrial plants of the day. And they were studying the effects of lighting on productivity. And what they found was, the really interesting result was, no matter what they did with lighting, increased it or decreased it, uh, people's productivity improved. So we're kind of going, wow, that's strange. You know, we didn't know that would happen. And what was happening, people were not responding to the changes in lighting. They were responding to the act of being observed. And this is a really landmark study in that it established a range of effects related to the obs observation of people, including things like people were more productive, people had increased social status when they were being observed, and even different kinds of social coordination. So the people who were involved, uh, who were being, studies, uh, being studied, actually started to work together to sabotage the work of the researchers. So <laughs> imagine that. Um, so this really got me thinking about presence being kind of like a coin. You know, on the one side, there's establishing a presence, sort of stating our availability that we are, you know, open and, you know, you can chat with us or message us or do other things. And the flip side of that being this awareness of the presence of others, you know, this sense of having an audience that's available to us. And I guess what I'm going to sort of submit to you today is that a lot of the interesting social behavior that we see online now draws on this awareness of having an audience. And so one of the great examples uh, is in the world of tagging, where there, you know, in addition to having uh, people classify and organize things with tags, there's a lot of opinion play in performance tags. Um, anybody here contributed a squared circle photo to Flickr? Lots of people, a few people, okay. So squared circle is this game that people play on Flickr. They take a picture of a round object, crop it so it's square, post it to Flickr, and tag it with the word squared circle. And there are now over 70,000 photos contributed by thousands of different users in the squared circle pool. There's no rules, there's no group, there's no, uh, no one kind of saying, here's how you do it. This is just a spontaneous game that emerged uh, a kind of play through uh, tagging and because of that awareness of uh, audience on Flickr. Another great example is last.fm, where we see, of course, a lot of you know, categorization tags, but also things like uh, awesome and beautiful, so opinion tags, and uh, some performance tags. You know, I've seen this group live. 
which is kind of the you know, digital equivalent of wearing the concert t-shirt, right? Um, you probably heard of this example too. This is Kevin Federline's album on Amazon.com where there's a whole community of people engaged in this play and performance tagging. So just a few examples. Uh, I'm really fond of epic fail. But, but the one I really like here is I left Justin for this. Like there's a certain, there's a certain archness about that. It assumes a lot of knowledge about the artist and the culture. That's really interesting. So this, this doesn't happen just in, uh, just in the tags. You know, Amazon allows user contributed photos for uh, books and albums. And what's happened is this kind of play and performance has extended into the album's user contributed photos. So this is one of the pictures that people have contributed for this album, honestly, a famous Johnny Cash picture. But what's interesting to me is that 10 out of 11 people found this image useful. Okay? Just let me, let me show you another one. 16 of 18 people found that one useful. Um, there are, there are actually photos of Kevin Federline attached to his album, which are, uh, have all been voted down. So like three of 50 people find those photos useful. So there's a real culture of play happening here just by having this awareness of, of having an audience. I, I mean, I think there are other cases as well um, where you know, our statements about presence really uh, play to our audience, right? They uh, aren't just saying, hey, I'm here. They're saying, hey, I'm here, and I'm aware of who you are. Um, so. So the question for me kind of coming to this panel was not just to talk about presence, but to talk about identity and presence and, and, and what's important in 10 minutes, which is pretty tough. Um, so I just wanted to kind of pose a question. Do we even need identity? You know, does presence alone give us what we need, uh, give us enough to engage in complex and meaningful social behavior online? You know, I think there's a lot of uh, evidence that that's the case. I mean, identity helps people moderate their behavior and it helps people introduce important social constraints, and it gives your uh, behavioral history kind of a unique thread through time. <laughs> but really, all you need is presence. Um, <laughs> and this is going to be a, a you-had-to-be-there moment. Um, so that's all for me, and uh, I guess I'll just leave it to the next person to uh, follow up. Is it Christina? Okay. Christina is here a great personal peril for all of you. I really wish I could do the first Willy Wonka where he comes out with a cane and then he does a backflip. I'm actually really used to the <laughs> By the way, can you remember why we decided to play a great game in the panel? What? Because of this?
test. Oh, yeah, that's a very good No, no. If only it had been funny. Okay, so uh, I decided to talk a little bit about the identity aspect of it. And um, I'm not up? Uh-oh, sorry. Uh, let me do this. It's that one. You want to stick? Should we want to have somebody else go next, and then we'll put this on a key for somebody? Okay, we'll just one with this one. Feel free. I'd really rather you go next. I'd really rather go next. I apologize for this. Does anybody have questions for those guys while we try to? Oh, voila! Magic! Hooray! No questions. We're safe. <laughs> That's a really good. Question. That was a really good question. Well, uh, <laughs> Sit back there. <laughs> and I want to thank everybody in the panel for helping me out with the theme of my talk. <laughs> so um, I don't want to spend. Uh, hey, great! It's not even good. now. It's not going next. Come on, next, next. There. Uh, I I think uh, a few people here know who I am. However, uh, I I wrote a book about information architecture, and the reason I'm Thinking a lot about social media is I recently joined LinkedIn, which is a pretty good place to learn about uh, social media. Um, I made a hex just because anybody can make a hex. All you need is uh, six things I've, I've learned. Um, I've been thinking about the identity aspect of it, and I think it's made up of these uh, six items. And if you think of more items, you can tell me about them, but that would uh, ruin the hex shape. Um, <laughs> First of all, the number one thing, uh, Clay Shirky, I hope everybody here has read a, a, a Group is Its Own Worst Enemy because it's probably the single best thing um, on the web written about uh, group and community behavior uh, by Clay Shirky. And what he says is if you're going to build um, a piece of social software that's going to be large and long-lived, the first thing you design um, for is handles that the user can invest in. And uh, I know that... A lot of people weren't around in the 70s, and so you don't know the CB talk, but that basically does mean a username. You have to have a name, uh, a unique identifier, so you can start building up qualities, and a user can become invested in those qualities so they protect the reputation. Um, one of the things, one of those elements is avatars. Now, we don't think very much about avatars. We just say, hey, a picture is a picture, right? No big deal. Well, um, avatars can really affect the way people behave. Um, on the far right here, we see uh, Vimeo, um, a series of users, and the bottom one is their default avatar, believe it or not. So if you don't upload an avatar, you are represented as uh, Cro-Magnon Man. I've got to say that's very motivating <laughs> to get people to upload an avatar. I really don't want to be represented as Cro-Magnon Man. I, I don't feel very comfortable with that. Um, as another little aside, uh, uh, Liz Danzico, a very wise woman, pointed out that um, over here on the right again, you'll see there's two different avatars I'm using. One is sort of this very professional face with a suit and so on, and the other one is me cuddled up with my newborn. And she said, you cannot use that avatar because I can't say no to you when I see that. You look all tired and like you just gave birth and I can't. So it's interesting that the avatar had shaped her behavior as well. But when I look like a chicken in a suit, she can easily say no. I'm just the man. 
Um, in the very bottom there, we see uh, Yahoo Answers. And when they originally conceived of Yahoo Answers, they thought that it would be sort of a knowledge search thing and people would ask questions about physics. And instead, people, teenagers took it over and started asking questions about what are military academies uh, are for and what English football club uh, is the best, you know? And they were kind of horrified. And I have a personal theory that I don't know if the Yahoo people agree with is that it's because of the avatars. Um, instead of being able to choose your own avatar, you were stuck with the uh, I am avatar, which is these sort of very hip uh, manga style animations. And I've always thought that that really set a certain tone for the nature of the community and the people who are drawn to it. Um, profile, which is another uh, important aspect of your identity, is very, very contextually based. When we go to design a, a profile and list of questions, we might think, well, what the heck, I'll just you know, steal from Facebook. But if you think about it, um, it's really not appropriate on LinkedIn to be asking me, am I single or married? You know? um, in fact, it could lead to potentially lawsuits. Um, there's another site called Patients Like Me that Joshua Porter introduced me to really uh, the Bocardo.com site is a fantastic site for, for social media. Um, and obviously, uh, Facebook's not going to ask me what uh, condition I have. You know, am I bipolar? This is a very special place where um, you can say that. Um, here, you might want to be able to have the power to not give my first name and last name. I want to use my username because it could be a little embarrassing to admit to the universe that, that I was bipolar or suffered from depression or, uh, or other conditions. So... Um, Questions that you think of as being very safe, such as first name and last name, end up being very perilous in, under certain conditions. Um, will you give me a five-minute nudge? Thanks. Gone past it, right? Yes. Uh, activity. Now, we're starting to get into some things that you might, think not, might not think about as representing activity, um, but you can actually get your users in trouble by the way you represent activity. For example, Twitter... Uh, doesn't do a great job of showing me who my readership is. It's just that huge pile of teensy tiny icons. So I kind of forgot that my parents follow me. And I blogged this. And then the next mom, my mom, I, I'm on the airplane. My mom's calling me going, I just heard what happened. You're crippled in pain. And I'm like, oh, mom, that's like five Twitters ago. What's going <laughs> I've moved on. So... <laughs> You know, you kind of have to help people remember that their, their activity is being tracked, it's being broadcasted, and who it's being broadcasted. Um, sometimes it's a good thing to not give people control of it. For example, uh, the, uh, the application we created, Public Square, shows when people recently logged in and how active they are. So uh, that's the one in the middle. And Jorge's, you know, got on very recently. He's got eight stories. I mean, wow, he's a superhero. But, you know, if I'd scrolled way down to the bottom, I might see somebody who hadn't logged in for six months, and I might know they were a slacker. Yes, Aaron, thinking of you. <laughs> um, or, for example, my blog log. It's a little widget that goes on blogs, and it shows who's been reading that blog. Well, I might feel kind of horrified if somebody saw me reading um, I'm trying to think of something embarrassing that I do. Um, but you can imagine blogs about embarrassing things that I might not want my face associated with. So there are... are um, I was going to go with comic book fan club, but I'm not actually embarrassed by that. So um, My friend feed is really fascinating because I would say this is one of the best examples of showing how you are what you do. Um, if you look at this list, what they do is they aggregate all the activity that you're doing across multiple uh, social situations. So uh, the things you're bookmarking, the things you're uploading to Flickr, the twits you're doing. And this really becomes a picture of who I am via what I do, which I find pretty interesting. Um, another aspect is collections. Again, we might not think of um, 
the things that you pick up as representing you, but they really, really do. Um, for example, you know, I have the Colbert Report on my Facebook uh, profile, and really there's no reason I can go watch it on uh, Comedy Central, but it's actually sort of stating uh, that I think he's funny or that I might have certain political leanings. Um, the visual bookshelf, um, I'm showing off all the books that I'm reading and reviewing. Uh, cities I've visited, you know. I mean, I'm not really collecting these to have them accessible to me. I'm really uh, collecting them to, to let the world know what I'm about. Um, you really have to, if you're going to do this, you have to give people control over it. For example, I know this one's hard to read on the far right, but it's basically LinkedIn recommendations. Um, I'm going to want to choose which ones show and which ones don't, just like I, I should be able to do with Visual Bookshelf. I might admit that I'm reading something and I really love it, um, but I might not want you know, all my friends to know about it. Again, there's an aspect of uh, embarrassment that could go with that. Or even um, my delicious tags. Um, delicious is great because they let you choose which are public and which are private, and that way I don't have to you know, necessarily uh, share Jim's dollhouse pages with uh, everybody who's interested in my social media tags. I can make that a private one. Thanks. Okay. Groups. Um, when I first joined LinkedIn, I was kind of surprised by their groups concept because um, it didn't do anything. Basically, if you join a group, like a, the Bacchus and Arrows group or uh, the Stanford alumni group, um, there's no discussion boards, there's nothing. But it does do one thing, which is it creates a badge on your profile, which says what you're all about. And this is a place where groups, where in Gene's model, it uh, would form a very different function than in this model. Here, groups are, again, showing affinity and showing what I'm all about. And then uh, relationships. Um, how many of you folks have somebody famous that you're following or you friended because you want them on your profile? Look, Dave Wiener is on my profile. Nobody's going to admit to that. Um, but I know do you do that. Um, you know, who we associate with very, very, very much forms um, a, a picture of who we're all about. And again, because of that, it has to be managed. So uh, again, this is the little uh, hex within a hex, perhaps we could call it. And uh, those are the, uh, the elements I'm, uh, I'm suggesting. I think that's it. Thanks. I'm all tangled up. There's a question from the audience. We can we can take that now. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. This way. So what the gentleman in the audience is saying is if we're doing that much management of our personas on these sites, is it just, isn't it just sex, uh, why did I say sex? <laughs> isn't it just second life? Hmm, sex. Uh, isn't it just second life? Um, you know, aren't we just, uh, pretend, you know, like men who go online and pretend to be women? Um, 
I think that you're always walking a thin line between your best self and not yourself at all. Um, with, because uh, Facebook and LinkedIn, you're being connected to people who can easily, easily out the truth about you. Um, you have to be careful to show your best self, but not a false self. And LinkedIn in particular um, is almost better because you know when you give somebody a resume, often people will say, I worked on this project or that project or the other project, and they're lying. You know, they're part of a giant consultancy. Um, I think we've, we've all seen people who do that. You know, they, they try to get credit for uh, work they didn't work on. But with LinkedIn, you know, you go, you see somebody says that, and you immediately find the eight people who you know that worked with this guy, and you can find out did they, what did they really do on it. So a social network's really interesting. On one hand, you have a lot of control over who you are. On the other hand, it's really way easy uh, for you to be found out because you have this uh, overlapping connection of people. So it is a thin line. Okay. Okay, hi. Um, I'm, uh, I'm Andrew Hinton. Uh, I work at Vanguard. And uh, Christian said we're supposed to introduce ourselves. So, wow, that, that person's voice is a lot louder than mine. Um, and uh, I think part of why I was involved in this is because I've been doing a lot of work on things like communities of practice and um, involvement in those kinds of social patterns. Um, I'm not going to talk about any of that right now uh, because part of what I wanted to talk about was I knew that Jean and Christina had seen their work and I knew they were going to be getting into some uh, things that were uh, uh, things about the patterns and whatnot, about a lot of different examples. So I wanted to hone in on one example. And I especially wanted to hone in on one example that nobody ever talks about, and I think it's about damn time somebody does. Uh, whenever, like, O'Reilly and these people talk about Web 2.0, which is the only time I'm going to say that the whole day, um, is that uh, they always talk about all the new poster children, you know, um, and nobody talks about poor old LiveJournal. Anybody here familiar with LiveJournal? Okay, have you ever used LiveJournal? Even fewer people, okay. So, um, but LiveJournal's been around forever. Uh, I think, it, what did it start, like 2000, 2001? It's like the Mesozoic era of web year, in web years. Okay, um, it's been around a long time. And honestly, they, this site pioneered, now granted there were some design issues and it's quirky and whatnot, but, but it really pioneered some things that we sort of are thinking as, of as new things. Now this isn't like an apologetics or uh, you know, a rah-rah for LiveJournal, but, but I just wanted to point it out partly because I know that a lot of people in the room are not working on brand new poster children websites or applications or whatever. You're working on stuff that maybe doesn't have a lot of room for a lot of zing and a lot of zang. Um, so LiveJournal is interesting because they do some things in fairly subtle or, or fairly kind of uh, workman-like ways that still get really interesting results um, and in terms of uh, the, the incredible variety of networking and uh, gradients of social involvement and, and um, presence and identity attention especially that, uh, that can happen there. So there's LiveJournal.com. Um, They've evolved their site uh, a time and time again over the years. They've actually been kind of passed around to different owners lately, but, uh, but they're still running. Um, the funny thing is that every time they do try to make any major change to their site, even if it's a huge improvement, there's always a huge number of people that say, no, don't change that. You, know, you would think that somebody had moved the baptismal font in the church into the attic or something. And uh, it, it, people get a sort of religious fervor about the space, the way that it's arranged, that they're used to. But so they slowly, so if you ever go to LiveJournal and you haven't used it before, you may notice that some of the navigation and stuff is a little wonky. It's like, why didn't they fix this? Well, because people get pissed whenever they try to fix it. Um, so uh, that said, um, I, I do think it's interesting that 
the, the web has, has become this thing where we're sort of just flinging bits of our mind out into the stratosphere, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and, and if people see it or not uh, is really uh, immaterial to a lot of us. Um, LiveJournal started that off very early uh, by um, basically saying, hey, you can just post things about your life out there for anybody to read. It's a journal, but it's there for anybody to read. Now, you can lock it if you want to, make it private, but a lot of people just decided, well, what the hell, I'm going to do this. And then people started reading. So it, it still creeps a lot of people out. Why would I do that? So to show you some examples today, though, I did a search, and I figured a safe thing to search on would be knitting. I don't knit myself, but I figured knitting would be... Uh, I didn't want to get anything you know, weird. So... Uh, but a lot of really interesting people are into knitting, apparently. Um, when I did a search, many, many thousands of, of, um, of, of profiles uh, came up on the LiveJournal search. And with one interesting thing about the search is that, you, for one thing, you can search on interests, um, which I think is actually the default search. The interests are put in by the users, and it's a very early folksonomy. Basically, you don't, they don't give you pre-controlled vocabulary of, of interests at all. Uh, you basically just start typing in the things you're interested in. And I'll show you that in a minute. Um, but this, uh, so anyway, we're going to focus on Miss Mia or Maya, however she might say that. In this list of, uh, of search results, okay, the search results from typing in one word, I get pages of um, icons, of avatar icons, and uh, the name, and a little icon next to the name. And then under that it says when they last updated their journal. And it's actually, the search results are ordered that way. Okay, somebody made a search decision, right? Somebody made a very mundane decision about how search is going to just spit up, you know, results that has a huge impact on the way presence and attention happen on this website. This person's going to get a little more attention because they came up in the first page because they're updating more frequently. So it's a value that is baked into the very architecture of the site based on just a few tweaks to some, something somebody did on the search engine. So every one of those little decisions has a huge impact. It, it, Christina got into a lot of good examples of this as well. So uh, I, I figured, I looked around at some of these and figured this would be a good one to look at because it has some nice examples of a few things. So here is, um, oh, so yeah, that was going to remind me to tell you about, oh, God, I do not need to laugh into the microphone, do I? Mm, five. Yeah, my watch says five minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, but I will hurry it up. Okay, so... Uh, the, uh, so here's the journal. Uh, not much to look at there, but basically it's a, it's a blog. Um, I also saw that uh, Miss Mia is a part of the Harry Potter knitting community. Um, who knew, right? <laughs> Harry Potter knitting. Um, and I thought, well, who the hell, you know, is going to... I looked, 1,660 members of the Harry Potter knitting community. And it's a buzzing, busy community. Like uh, eight or ten posts a day, people posting about knitting Harry Pottery things. And so I wanted to point out that this is one thing that, um, that identity, attention, and presence are affected by that the web has provided that nothing else in history has ever done, which is it allows this sort of collective connection of people from all over the world about things that are the most niched, you know, like uh, minuscule interests that you would never expect otherwise. Um, so this is, um, this is the profile. See, it's very, this is very basic. This isn't very uh, fancy. There's not a lot of RIA stuff happening or whatnot, but here's a piece of this person's profile. And um, you've got uh, the, the, the things like their Yahoo ID, birth date, all kinds of stuff, like facts about them. You can choose whether or not to put things up, these things up there. Um, and then, let's see, what else was I going to say about the profile? Oh, so uh, 
what this is doing, though, is it's, it's letting you choose which parts of yourself that before anything like this was in the world would sort of be these um, vague things about you that were not made into explicit data. Now we can like make them into this explicit data, and it all depends on what fields are available, right? So you have to think about that. What are all the parts of this person that are, that are valid or, or valuable in this context? Um, now, then we get into the interest. I already told you that the interests are essentially uh, a folksonomy that kind of, kind of got generated, but you can see they're all links. The funny thing is that some of them get misspelled, right? And it's amazing how many people will misspell certain words. And so it's almost like you've got people clustered under the a misspelled version of something like binoculars or whatever. Um, but it's, it's kind of a trip. And maybe those people have something else in common that the people who spell it right don't. You never know. Um, but also friends. And I, uh, so I've been blogging a little bit about friending and flourishing. I'm going to take the last two minutes of, of, of speaking to uh, go over that as a reassuring Christian. Um, and basically to say that uh, one of the ways that you show who you are is by whom you friend. Uh, because friending, when it is exposed like this, uh, expresses also your interests because whoever you're friending has a, a sort of a secondary interest attachment. Um, it, it, uh, it also shows the relationships that you have, shows the kinds of people you read. Because LiveJournal is all about reading. It's, it's basically a bunch of blogs that are all connected together. Um, also, you end up with a friend feed, which was a fairly novel thing when LiveJournal first started doing it, which is basically a news feed of everybody, but it mixes them all together the way that Twitter does. So it's not like Google Reader, where every uh, source has a separate feed. It mixes them all together in time, so it just keeps it coming. And, uh, and it's a little addictive for people who use Live. I haven't used LiveJournal in a long time, but when I, when I was using it, it was, yeah, it was like hitting it like every two or three hours. Um, and uh, then you can manage friends. and, and LiveJournal has, has probably, I think, the most advanced friends filtering management system of any social network I've ever seen. Uh, basically, I mean, you can set up filters and, uh, and post only to those filters, and you can have all these recombinant versions of, of people on your list. But no matter how you manage all that, no matter how you mix and match all those people, they're still going to show up publicly on your list. Everybody can always see whom you friended. And that's one of the things that's interesting about LiveJournal to me, is, and Twitter does this too, is that I think it's part of what has helped it grow, and grow so fast early on, was because if somebody found your blog or your, your journal and they were interested, they would go to your profile page and say, well, who do you read? And you can't hide that. You can hide whom you friended, or no, you can hide whom, who has friended you, but not whom you friended. Um, and just one last thing is about the icons. Christina touched on this, but on LiveJournal, you can have like 120 or 30 or they keep going up every couple of years but many many icons and what people are doing is they're using these little icons as additional uh, expressive points of, of ways of uh, of giving their mood on and some people now are doing this a little bit on twitter like they'll switch their icon if they're in a bad mood or if they're thinking about something in particular but but here you can stick one on each post and people ha and, and there's a whole like cottage industry uh of, of icon making on LiveJournal. You can see that some of these, they'll say who they're by, like they'll give credit. There's a whole like Creative Commons like ethic on LiveJournal for icon creation. So um, that's what's fascinating to me about LiveJournal. I think it's a really nice kind of, nowadays low tech way of kind of looking at, uh, at, at small ways that you can add these, these little decisions that have huge impacts in terms of the way things happen on anything that you're designing. And that's it for me. And we're not gonna have to do the switcheroo again because the two Andrews merged into one presentation. So, Andrew Crow. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to make you yell. You're going to do the presentation for me? Yeah. <laughs>
Hello. Um, so how many people here are information architects? That's like a stupid question, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, how many people here are interaction designers? More than I expected. How many people are not either of the two? You're all doing something more exciting, I'm sure. Um, so well, so my, uh, my name is Andrew Crow. I work at Adaptive Path. Um, I'm a senior experience designer at AP, and uh, what that allows me to do is that uh, I get to dabble in quite a lot of things, such as IA, uh, interaction design, strategy, um, visual design, and, and so forth. So, um, so some of the things that I wanted to do today, a lot, a lot of these guys have covered some really interesting topics, but I wanted to try to take it um, into something a little more tactical and ask, what can we do now? Like, what can we do with all this information that we've heard? What can we do with all the information that we're sort of figuring out um, individually? And um, is, there, is there anything that we can um, work into the, the upcoming projects that we're doing and, and things that we're, uh, we're engaging in today? So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is developing standards. Now, I'm sure that's, uh, that's very exciting for a lot of people here. Um, there's you know, things like taxonomy and, 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 and formats and stuff like that. But one of the things that I wanted to, um, to mention is how do we define our status or how do we define our presence in a very in a, in, a, in a way that everyone else can easily understand and in a way that um, all the other applications or um, multiple applications can sort of take advantage of um, there's a lot of reasons that everybody up here said earlier about having specific types of presence and specific ways of expressing yourself depending on this the web application you're using or depending on the mobile device but there might be ways that we can look to sort of standardize some of this uh, to make it easier for people uh, to become more comfortable with, uh, with social applications such as this. So one of the things that I wanted to share with you is this, this model or this, this format um, that was brought up by a friend of mine uh, named Jared Benson. He works for a company called Punchcut in the Bay Area. And the idea here is that we have, our, we have our name. It's very simple. We have our name. We have the context or the status message that we're trying to get across. And of course, and then we have our communication preference. And the idea behind that is that Everyone obviously has a name. They have something that they want to sh express and share with people. But depending on their presence, depending on their status or their physical availability um, specifically, there may be ways that they are more comfortable with, be with getting feedback or be getting communication from, uh, from others. Here's some examples. So uh, Peter's at the movies. Well, if I just saw that Peter's at the movies, I may not know that I, he might be in the lobby getting popcorn. He might still be able to take a phone call at that case. Or if he's sitting in the theater, I, I shouldn't be calling him, right? But, but he's indicated to everybody who sees this message that, that a text message is okay. It's okay for him to be bothered in that way, but not by a phone call, not by um, email, obviously, and, and not by anything else. Uh, similarly, Leah is in a meeting. She's in a client meeting and, and cannot be disturbed at all, right? She doesn't want any, any type of interruption, so she might actually even shut off her phone or turn off her computer. But Kiara might be in a, in a, in a, in a meeting where people can bother her, and uh, she's welcoming text messages. She's okay with email um, or, or instant messages. So it depends on the, the, the type of uh, situation that you're in can also, that, that affects directly the status and your availability. The other thing I want to talk about is designing for ambient intimacy. Um, and there's, there's three things about this. There's one is, is we, we should, as designers and, and IAs, be aware of privacy issues, right? There's, there's certain things that um, I have no problem sharing with friends and coworkers, but I absolutely have a problem sharing with everyone in the world. So as a very basic um, level, any application that we design or any type of interface that we design should have privacy in it. I think that's all fairly well understood, but it's worth, it's worth mentioning. 
Giving users control, I think, is also important to, to think about. Has anybody, everybody seen Minority Report, right? Or at least a good chunk of people here have, have seen that. So if you remember, there's one particular scene where Tom Cruise is walking uh, down a hallway and he's just um, hammered with customized ads left and right because that system knows who he is, right? So, the, so he is essentially, the system has essentially taken that privacy away from him and injected itself into his life. Well, the control issue here is that users should be able to control their presence. Your presence is very basic. It's a very basic key fundamental aspect of who you are, right? It is literally the, the core of who you are. It's, 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 who, it's what, you've, what you believe in, who you, how you define yourself. So giving up complete control to that is, I think, a very scary thing. It's very scary for the user itself, but I think it's a very scary path for us as designers and people who are implementing the systems to go, to go further down. So I think we should be aware of how much control we relinquish to the, user, to the system and how much we um, maintain in the, in the user's uh, ability to, to manage. And lastly, very similar to privacy, is affording levels of publicity. So there's, for example, Twitter. I've got a, a, I've got a few followers who, who follow me. Um, I've got family members. I've got people who, um, who I know at work. I've got people who I don't even know. There's some level of, of publicity that I'm willing to share with my family members and some, willing, uh, some stuff that I want my coworkers to know, but I don't necessarily need the rest of my followers to know, right? So being aware of setting groups and permissions and sharing what, is, uh, what you want publicly shared out there is important to, for us to remember as we design systems as well. Again, because people have different ambient exposure. They have different types of content that they want to share to different groups of people. Another thing that I think we should remember, it's fairly important to develop flexible structures. As much as we want to control a system, as much as we want to design a very rigid um, structure of sharing information and signing up and friending people, I think we have to understand that, um, that the reality is, is that people are going to use our systems the way they want to. Right? We can't always control how people use the systems that we design. We need to encourage adoption, right? But the last thing, we, uh, in, in order to do that, we want to design with less restrictions. So we can't put up so many barriers to entry that it, re that it restricts people's use of the systems that we're designing. There's a couple of examples. Um, Twitter essentially started with a question down there at the bottom where it says, what are you doing? So literally, the application and the, and the, and the group behind Twitter was asking, what are you doing at this given moment? Like, what personal aspects of your life do you want to share with the people who are following you? But other people uh, decided to take that system and tweak it to their own use, such as Woot or even CNN. Well, Woot.com here uses their Twitter feed to advertise the things that they're selling at any given moment. So it's less about what they're doing. Well, it is still a little bit about what they're doing, but they're using the system in a, in a slightly uh, unanticipated way to get, to get their message across. Same with Flickr. Flickr is defined as an online photo management and sharing application, but there are a lot of people who are using Flickr for you know, image hosting for their blogs or for just image repository. Um, there's this one gentleman who's using it to catalog interfaces and, and, and how um, different websites work. So he's not necessarily sharing that with anybody, but he's, he's cataloging it uh, for his own personal use. One of the last things I want to share with you, again, with 10 minutes, um, is that presence settings should be easy to set. That sounds very basic, right? But, but there, are, um, there are some applications that do this very well and some applications that fail miserably at this. Um, this screenshot over here is some instructions on how to use dodgeball. 
Um, Dodgeball, for those of you who may not be aware, is, is a SMS presence setting tool or status setting tool. Basically, you text to a short code where you're at, very similar to Twitter, and it will, um, it will broadcast to the, to the people who are following you. It allows you to make connections uh, and things like that. But at, the, at its core, it's very easy to use, very basic, very simple. It's right there on your phone. Um, another example is IM applications, right? More often than not, it's right there at the top. You set your status, you set what you're doing. You're either away, you're present, um, you're at work, you're at home, you're sleeping. Very easy to set. It's right there at the top. Phones, mobile phones, don't necessarily do this as well. In fact, there are very few mobile phone systems that I've seen that allow you to set your presence uh, in, a, in, a, in, a me in an immediate way, in a fast way, and in a way that makes sense to other people. For example, um, well, the iPhone, there is actually no presence setting, right? You can't set on the phone, I am available for a particular uh, action. I'm available for a call or please text message me. There's no way to just whip out the phone, uh, set that setting with either like a hard key or some type of easy access menu and have it be broadcast out to people. It just, um, it just doesn't exist. So when we design mobile applications, maybe we want to be aware of that. There's this idea of proactive and reactive status messaging, right? Reactive is... A good example of reactiveness is when, um, when I get a phone call on my mobile device and it's somebody that I don't necessarily want to talk to, well, I can send it right to voicemail. That's reacting. I'm reacting to their request of communication with me. Um, vo uh, typical answering machine at your house is a, an older school way of, of looking at that. But proactive status setting would be something that I could literally set on a, on a mobile device or my computer that says, I am going into a meeting. Um, and, and I cannot be bothered by any of you people, but um, so that when you, when you call me or you attempt to IM me, your system that you see on your computer has that proactive status. It tells you that, you know, look, just again, just like I am, uh, it tells you that, that that person is unavailable. Imagine if we could do that with our mobile devices or other type of computer systems within our homes, being able to tell people before they even make the attempt to communicate with you the manner in which you're able to be communicated with. So the last thing I wanted to finish up with is, is opportunity. Um, we here in this room have a tremendous opportunity to affect this change and to affect these systems that, that we're building. There are a lot of people um, out there, such as the carriers and the big telcos, um, and I am, I am client people, for example, the things that I've been talking about. And there are other companies that who already are doing this to some degree. They are dealing with... Um, these problems in their own proprietary way, and not a lot of the systems talk well to each other. But we as designers have that opportunity, so from, from almost from the grassroots or the bottom up, to be able to affect this change. We can decide how we, the people who use these systems, uh, want to use the systems and inform our clients and inform the people that we work with how we can slowly make these changes uh, to, to come to this sort of this uh, collective realization on, on understanding presence. And that's all I have for now. I know we've got a few more minutes for questions, so. Thank you. I wanted to um, have a little crosstalk on the panel and then take questions, um, but I'm inclined to just take questions yeah, at this point. Unless people in the audience don't want to talk, which I doubt. So, do we have do we have volunteers in the room, or how? You know. Yeah. Okay. I, I was just wondering if they get a mic. I guess we just repeat the question. Yeah. So the hand up back there. 
So the question is, I think from a design perspective, how do you uh, expire a status that has become stale and isn't, isn't really trustworthy anymore? How do you indicate whether a status is still fresh? Sure. Uh, we'll repeat their questions, yeah. So. Don't so give could, them a I, mic. I, I could take a little stab at that. So obviously one, one way you could do it is say, make your mobile device or make, make some type of device that you have on with you all the time be automated and be smart enough to be able to tell like what you're doing. For example, if most phones are in the near future are going to have GPS, so you could say, well, okay, this person is now no longer at lunch. They are back at the office. Or you, know, you take that system and you combine it with your calendar. You say, well, Mike, you know, I have a meeting, obviously, at meeting at 2 o'clock, and I'm in the office based on my GPS location, so therefore the system could automatically reset my, my status or my presence. The catch, though, is that, again, going back to that, um, that making it too automated and giving up some control, there's like, you know, Peter, I work with Peter in the back there. I don't necessarily want him to know that I'm not in the office at any, at any given moment. Or if I'm working from home and he sees me, you know, somewhere else, that's not necessarily good. So I want to be able to prevent, I want to be able, basically, I want to prevent Peter from knowing where I'm at at any given moment. So therefore, I'm gaming the system. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll I'll just say that one of the things I really like about Twitter is is that um, it, it's open ended, so that while people are sort of you know doing the the presence thing, they're also having conversations and and communicating likes and dislikes and and, and doing a whole lot else. And and so it's kind of important that those things not be expired, that there be a history. Um, and if you if you don't want people to know what you're talking about, you can always lock down your your um, your account. Um, and I think that's, I mean, you can sort of design for all these particular cases of presence, and as you sort of narrow in on getting the right solution for that, you take away some of the open-endedness that allows a system like Twitter to really flourish. And I, I think that's important, too. Somebody else want to go? Next question. Sure. Whoever stands up first. <laughs> Start yelling. You mean they, they aren't there already? So just to re repeat the question, it was a, the question about, um, well, first of all, hasn't it been reported that there has been a drop-off in activity or maybe in the rate of increase of activity at, at Facebook and perhaps at MySpace as well, and um, uh, uh, whether or not there might be some sort of fatigue involved uh, that, that maintaining your presence across numerous systems online could be a burden and you might be swept into something by peer pressure and say, well, we're, why aren't you on Facebook? Everybody here is on Facebook and find that you've now, in a sense, opened up a new obligation in your life to keep everybody up to date on what you have for breakfast or whatever and that you now don't necessarily want to keep maintaining that. And I'll just take one quick stab at that, which is that I do think that, uh, you know, on, on the side of designing a system like this, there's something called the cold start problem, which is how do you get people into your new network? And I think there's a, there's a flaw in that thinking a little bit, which is the idea that every network has to recreate the entire social graph, the entire social net, the, you know, the entire 
picture of everybody and all their friends. Um, it's a real problem because if you're trying to build a system with social uh, capabilities, you need people to populate their profiles and start to use it, and you, you need a certain critical mass so there isn't that sort of ghost town feeling when, you, when people uh, show up for the first time. Um, and so that can lead to some maybe viral slash you know, questionably ethical ways of encouraging people to over-invite or to prematurely invite other people or drag other people into the system, which I think in the long run isn't healthy necessarily for that. You know, on the other hand, I do think that there's naturally going to be enthusiasm and fan you know, um, uh, fashion curves essentially where people do rush along with, with the crowd and do something that in the long run they may not have a commitment to. And so I think there's a normal amount of drop-off from certain peak periods in the growth of any kind of new system that, that's based on network effects and, and growing your, your user base that way. I think uh, part of that also might be that a lot of people are realizing that if you accept everybody who friends you and friends them back, which feels sort of like the social obligation, you end up with a lot of noise and you're unable to manage it. And sometimes it just seems easier to give up the entire network rather than to try to go back and prune out the real people out of it. Um, so that brings it to another really important and difficult design uh, decision for all of us, which is how do you decline gracefully an invitation? Um, somebody has said, you know, I want to connect with you. How do, how do you say no? I really don't like you. I don't know who you are. Why are you bothering me? Um, because in the real world, we really can't do that. Um, or even uh, in LinkedIn's case, somebody uh, you don't know very well may ask you for a recommendation. And when you're on Amazon and you're reading a book, you don't really mind saying this sucked. But it's a lot more complicated when it's another human being. Um, I think there's a lot of smart ways uh, to do it, such as, you know, uh, you can archive a invitation or ignore it, which gets you out of the problem of actually saying no. Um, or if you want to just tell somebody who's uh, a LinkedIn lion, in other words, somebody who just collects people for the sake of collecting it, you can say, I do not know this person. And they will actually uh, be uh, banned from inviting more people for quite a while. Um, so there are definitely tools that can be put in place to try to hold down that kind of behavior. But uh, as we design these, these social solutions, it's, it's really complicated because we are talking about real human interaction. And it's a very delicate thing. Just, just a quick uh, comment on to follow on that. Um, this is something that I, I earlier, not this year, last year, you know, a bunch of us got really into Facebook pretty heavy. It was like, wow, Facebook is great. They've got this new API. This is awesome. We were talking about how hey, this is the future, blah, 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 blah. I never really got the whole, like, the Facebook is the new web thing. I, th I thought that was overkill. But uh, still, I was, I was intrigued, right? But it, precisely up to some degree, this question is part of what I think killed Facebook for me and for a lot of people, or is this starting to kill it, is this idea that um, they allowed all these coercive things to happen in terms of like when people would say, um, yeah, okay, I'll click on this little link to look at the zombie somebody sent me or whatever, that, that they were signing their freaking life away, right, when they did that. And, 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 um, and they were accepting all these things that were either too, either too convoluted to understand or, or that were sort of hidden or tucked away in some, you know, yes, uh, um, opt-in, uh, that before you knew it, you know, there were all these entanglements then that, that then uh, had all these obligations for you, like to keep up with stuff and whatnot. So um, that's definitely a, a problem. And, and Facebook has burned their hand on that stove of like a half a dozen times in the last nine months, I think. Um, now... On the other end of that, though, you've got a situation where you have networks where um, uh, just because of the cultural pressure 
uh, of the fact that it's becoming kind of this critical mass, it's like, well, I don't necessarily want to be on there, but I guess I'm going to have to. I mean, the Yellow Pages for generations was like this, right? If you were a business and you wanted to have a presence in the world, you had to have Yellow Pages out, whether you wanted one or not. And it was like the only window. Was the, it was the little drinking straw people had to look through to find all the businesses everywhere. Um, so there are some things you're going to have to do just because that's how the world is. And there are some things that are that way because it's maybe um, uh, negligently sinister of the designers of the, of the platform. I think that's that first sense of presence I was talking about. That you, you have to have a, pre you have to show up. You have to be findable in that place. And I think a lot of us, those of us who prefer open approaches, w would like to say, well, you have to have a presence online, but you don't necessarily have to have a presence in Bebo or a presence in Facebook. Or it shouldn't be that we hope. I mean, this is a moral, you know, a value judgment. But in my opinion, it shouldn't be that you have to be a member of somebody's closed social network to exist, you know, in the future. Um, yeah, exactly. Reality doesn't always line up with my personal moral right. preferences. Um, I don't understand why. Uh, yes. You're talking about what, what information uh, us as designers and developers? Right, right. So, so the so the so the question is, um, in terms of privacy, as as you're designing these systems, what type of information um, should you be asking for, or how how basically how do you know what types of information you should ask for, or even can ask for? Um, I would say that's up to your lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, yeah, and and Andrew's got a Andrew's got an answer that, that he can give you. But uh, all I will say is it really do, it it um, it's basically predicates on your your strategy. Hopefully, you have a, a decent enough strategy that that uh, tells you exactly what information you should and should not be collecting, and that um, you're collecting only what you need in order to make your business uh, more valuable to the person who's who's there. But sure. Uh, so the the sort of follow on there sounded like, if I can paraphrase that. Sometimes clients or employers or the man or whatever uh, is giving some pressure to the designers to say, okay, well, we need this, this, because in some boardroom they came up with some list of stuff that for whatever reason they think they need to have out of their customers. We're put in the unfortunate position of having to tell our employer or client or whoever that, um, okay, well, in this world of, of social media, social, I don't like that phrase, really, but, you know, social design, uh, the users are totally boss, and uh, you can't ask them anything unless there is a, a value apparent to them for them giving. So it is it is an exchange, and you ha so you have to one understand your user base well enough to understand how valuable is that information to them, how easily they're going to give it up. Two, you have to make it apparent to them what 
what value they're going to get out of it. Three, you have to deliver on that value or they will say, screw you. I just told you who my neighbors were and now you're freaking sending them crap in the mail and, you know, showing up at their front door. Um, so, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, class action lawsuits are made of. So, um, so but it's not only a legal thing and not just an ethical thing. You can always just say, just in pure practicality, do you want this thing to work or not? And if you want it to work then you need to learn what they're willing to give and then give them value for it and then promise to keep it secret forever and ever and die with it to the grave, right? Uh, th those, are, those are three foundational things for asking for private information in, in my book. Anybody else? Can I, can I just uh, – I just want to just talk about a slightly different angle, I guess, and, and sort of going back to what I was talking about, that you know, part of presence being awareness of an audience out there. I think it's important that you give people controls over what they reveal. It's not just what information you take. Let's assume you take as much information as you can get. That's what most businesses want to do, right? It's giving your users control over what they reveal to their audiences in a fairly granular way. And, and I think, remember, Facebook had a problem with this earlier where you know, people were buying Christmas gifts online and it turned up in their news feed and, you know, all of a sudden their, their children or their spouses, you know, uh, found out what their surprise was. Um, so I think that's, that's a really important aspect of social design and that's, that's going back to what, what is the user experiencing, what does the user need to reveal or hide from the people that they share that social space with and how do you give them controls or filters or other tools to, um, to manage their own personal privacy even if you can't convince your organization to limit the amount of data it collects. One more thing along those lines. I mean, uh, I'm on a lot of, I, you know, I often get, like I got a mailing, I got an email from lulu.com recently just reminding me that I've subscribed to their news and updates and giving me a link to unsubscribe. And I guess I get one of those every month or whatever they think is a reasonable thing to do. Um, and it seems like you could do the equivalent of that with certain kinds of privacy settings. You could remind the users every once in a while that, you know, when you were young and foolish, you said we could show these photos of your tattoos to everybody, but now you may want to reconsider that it's been six months or it's been a year or whatever. Um, I, I do think that in the, the, there is a conflict in the value of trying to encourage people to give you data and share it with each other and create value in the network that you can monetize, et cetera, um, when at the same time that could lead you to trick people or coax people or bring them out past their boundaries by misleading them about what are the consequences. So I think there is a very strong, again, ethical issue in terms of clearly educating people um, and helping them over that initial hump in terms of entering any new community where you don't yet know the norms and you don't necessarily understand how you look to other people. And one thing we didn't really talk, haven't really talked about much is this idea of how your identity is reflected in a number of different ways. Um, and, and anyway, I'll, I'll stop there because I would like to take more questions if we have time.
So the question was about um, instead of joining individual social networks, if, if you can uh, maybe join one particular organization or one, one particular um, thing that allows you to either subscribe to different social networks or at least allows you to get your information into those social networks in a, in a much uh, faster way than having to refill, you know, fill out the forms over and over again. Um, to answer your question directly, I, I know that there is a lot of um, movement behind the sort of data portability or, or you know, open, it's like open ID, but for your own information, your own personal uh, information. I'm not at all an expert on that, but I, but um, you're asking if there's sort of trends toward that, and I think there is, yes. So um, I don't know if it exists anything beyond what Google and Yahoo are, are maybe doing right now, but um, I, I don't doubt that that won't come very, very soon. Well, I, I would second that too. I'd say that, that there's a convergence because it's not sustainable to create a new niche community around every single thing. I mean, eventually everybody will have one social network with just them in it or something like that. Um, so there has to be some way to carry these things over or make them portable or cross them over. I'm in the whole um, po portable social network thing. I'm, I'm trying to popularize personal social network as, as, a, as, a, as a different way of saying that. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to see these solutions. And I do think that some of the big companies are interested, like, like Yahoo, I'm sure Google, et cetera, in facilitating that. Um, uh, but maybe it'll come emerge out of the community like OpenID and OAuth have that create ways for people to authorize the sharing of their information securely from one system to another. Uh, Google's open social, that's right, yeah. Well, and, and that's a framework that would allow some of these elements to become more portable, definitely, and also help crush Facebook. Um. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Just one other thing about that. Originally, I wanted Brian Overkirk to be on this panel, um, and he had a conflict and wasn't able to make it. But he's working on an initiative. He has a, he has a he's contributing to a blog called OwnYourOwnIdentity.com. I think that's what it's called, which is related to a, a initiative called Chimp. It's just an idea right now. There's no running code or spec or anything, but it has to do with the idea of a portable, honest broker identity layer that you could then take with you like, you know, in a sort of a, a equivalent of a wallet and, and use in, at, at various um, end, end user applications. So your question? That's a great question. Does anyone feel like taking it? Okay. I'm going to throw the first thing that came to mind out, and which might not be as good as what these guys think about it if they think about it for a minute. But this reminds me a lot of uh, the credit card companies. Um, not about, about information, but about the fact that they take advantage of the uh, naivete and impulsivity of people whose brains aren't quite form, formed yet, and they're also drunk half the time. Um, <laughs> I, I have no excuse, but an 18-year-old does. Um, yeah, well, them too. And uh, so, oh, and did I repeat the question? I didn't. Um, did you repeat the question? Or did, I don't think anybody did. So the question was, though, do we have responsibility in terms of um, people who are signing up to things like Facebook or whatever, and when they're young, they're doing things that are irresponsible, but then they realize later, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. So uh, the purely kind of utilitarian view would be, hey, you put something out there, and what happens happens. It's not your responsibility. I think that as a culture, as we mature a little more into these kinds of things, we start to realize that, you know, maybe we do have a bit of a responsibility. Um, and credit card companies are starting to pay, they're getting sued 
and, and the Congress is coming after them. We just saw what happened to mortgages, right, uh, adjustable mortgages in this country and elsewhere because of this, a similar thing. Somebody just puts a bunch of terms and conditions in front of somebody and says, sign it and you're going to get this thing. And nobody reads the terms and conditions. They just go and they want the thing. And understanding that about human behavior, they did it anyway, right? So I do think that not only are we ethically, I think, uh, should be thinking about it, but it's going to come back to bite us in our design if we don't. Five years down the road, you're going to have some CEO who got kicked out of his job because of, um, you know, he mooned somebody on Facebook when he was 20. And, uh, and he's going to come and sue you because he's going to say, you know what, I have lawyers now and I'm mad because you let me do this. So, again, I always come back to the practical reason. If, if you've got an employer or a client or whatever that's wanting you to do something like that, say, uh, hey, you might want to think about it because this could hurt you. So that's just one idea. Well, I was going to say there, there are tons of design patterns that we're aware of already, which is, you know, very clearly letting people know when they upload a photo or when they write something, where is it going to go, who's going to see it, what's public, what's semi-public, what's private. And letting people know that stuff is really important. Tiny things like creating previews where you can say, is this really what you meant to say are important. I mean, we have a million of those design things. And obviously the most important one being delete and making sure that, you know, you have control over your data and you can delete it. But there's two things. Um, one is that there's been lots of studies shown, um, Dana Boyd's work in particular, shows that uh, the current generation um, is living their life more publicly than ever before, is perfectly aware of the consequences and just don't care. They also, you know, don't care if they have 16 beers and they don't care if their girl's gone wild. I mean, the fact is that we have a, a generation that just is willing to be a lot more public and then later probably still will sue you. Um, even though it was their choice. Uh, and that's just a simple fact. And the other one is once something is public, um, that's it. It's gone off in the world. This is the web. Things are cached. Things are copied down to people's uh, hard drives. It goes out in the world. There's going to be a lot of things that we can't control, and we have to be able to accept, you know, like the 12 steps. You know, we have to accept the things we can't control and control the things we can. Can we have a round of applause for our panelists? Are we done?